This podcast is supported by a grant from Sanofi Regeneron. Welcome to the podcast series from the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. My name is Jerry Lee, and this is the second of our three-part series on severe pediatric asthma. In this episode, we will discuss the evaluation of the child with severe asthma. Joining me today are Dr. Wanda Pitahanical and Dr. William Anderson. Dr. Pitahanical is the director of the Division of Immunology Research Center at Boston Children's Hospital and the S. Jeans Emmons Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She has dedicated her career to reducing and preventing asthma and allergic diseases. Dr. Pitahanical has built a deep network of community relationships and conducts both school and home-based asthma studies in children focused on reducing disparities. And Dr. Anderson is an associate professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital Colorado and University of Colorado School of Medicine and is board certified in pediatrics internal medicine, is the director of the Multidisciplinary Asthma Clinic, co-director of the Improving Pediatric to Adult Care Transition Program, and his scholarly and clinical interests include difficult to treat and severe asthma, technology in medicine, including electronic medication monitoring, and the transition from pediatric to adult care. Juan and Bill, thank you again for joining us today on Allergy Talk. Thanks a lot, Jerry, for having us. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. So Bill, what would we have to go through to work through the difficult to treat asthma patients? Oftentimes, um, I'm sure Wanda sees this in her clinic as well, patients are referred to us with severe persistent refractory asthma. And in a lot of cases, you're really working up what's difficult to treat asthma. And the first step is you definitely want to confirm the diagnosis of asthma. The same way that people are innocent until proven guilty, I assume this is not asthma until it's proven to be asthma for me. So you definitely want to make sure that you are appropriately diagnosed diagnosing it with spirometry when available. You want to see a bronchodilator response. You want to know the patient's prior history with response to asthma therapies, how they've responded to bronchodilators and steroids. And you may also want to consider potential use of a fractional exhaled nitric oxide in your diagnosis, which has been added to the most recent focused NHLBI guidelines in 2020. After you've diagnosed asthma, you want to also make sure that you're excluding and or treating any associated comorbidities. So this can include conditions that are affecting a patient's underlying asthma control or potentially mimicking asthma-like symptoms. A common one we see in our adolescent population is inducible laryngeal obstruction, also known as vocal cord dysfunction. You can see gastrointestinal manifestations of disease that either contribute to or worsen asthma, such as eosinophilic esophagitis or GERD. You want to make sure you're also thinking about upper respiratory conditions such as chronic sinusitis or allergic rhinitis. Beyond the comorbidities, you also want to think about what are some of the chronic exposures. We are allergists, so we think all the time about the environment. And so are there pets in the home? Are there other allergic triggers in the home? Is there secondhand smoke exposure in the home as well? And Wanda has also done some great job looking at exposures in the schools as well. 
Next, you want to think about the psychosocial barriers to care. For example, is there associated anxiety or depression that could be either worsening their underlying asthma symptom perception or potentially impact their ability to take their medications? And then thinking about taking medications, you obviously want to think about adherence in these patients as well. It could be something as quote unquote simple as they're not taking their medications, but as we know, adherence is much more complicated than that. Okay. Well, it seems to be a lot of steps there. So let's break that down one at a time. So I admit to you that a lot of our severe asthma patients come in on therapy. And so, you know, sometimes their spirometry actually doesn't look so bad. So Bill, what's a way that you would sort of get that data that you're looking for, that reversibility? Do you sort of do them a summer holiday? What's the best way to sort of demonstrate variable expiratory airflow limitation? So you would certainly want the patient to hold any medications, including those that contain a long-acting beta agonist, prior to testing to see if you're able to evoke that response. You could consider potentially a methacholine challenge in some of these patients if you're certainly wanting to exclude a diagnosis of asthma, but we find that we're using that far less frequently in our pediatric population at Children's Colorado. Yeah. And again, I think that next step you mentioned was working through different comorbid conditions. So Wanda, I'd love to ask you, is there sort of a standard array of testing you do that? Do you go based on history? How thorough do you investigate these comorbidities? Bill touched a bit on many of the comorbid conditions that can really exacerbate asthma or mimic asthma. And so clearly a history and physical exam is really key on pointing whether further workup needs to be done and how doing lung function testing, maybe FENO, if they're old enough, that it's a little more of a challenge in the younger kids below age five, looking to see if they have bronchodilator response. I agree with Bill that we tend to use methacholine challenging less frequently, but really to make sure that you are dealing with asthma, that you have a patient that has asthma. And then if there's some of the other conditions, you would send them along to do diagnostic testing for some of these other GERDs, sleep apnea. We always in clinic going to check for allergies and look for environmental triggers as well. And then ask a lot about other potential conditions that could exacerbate and phenotypic features such as obesity and other markers as well. Then from a laboratory standpoint, we do also try to kind of characterize the asthma as to whether this is more of a type 2 inflammatory disease or a non-type 2 inflammatory disease. And that can be identified by doing allergy skin testing, which I had mentioned, and then looking at IgE levels, maybe checking eosinophil counts as well, and looking at the FENO is elevated. So these are just some of the tools that we use to try to determine for sure that the patient has asthma and then consider some other comorbid conditions or other conditions that could exacerbate their asthma more. Once we confirmed the diagnosis of asthma and we've addressed comorbidities, I think the number one reason why outpatient asthma therapy fails is that the medicine did not enter the body. I think that we've seen this a lot. And I would say this is probably one of the biggest challenges I have as an asthma physician. And so I'm really happy to hear some expertise. So maybe Bill, we'll just start with you. Knowing that this is one of the biggest challenges, we talked about some of the barriers on earlier podcasts. What is your approach to identifying non-inheritance medication and maybe what we can do about it? 
This has been something that's obviously been a barrier to care for asthma as long as medications have existed. And every other condition also feels the same way with having difficulty controlling those conditions with adherence to medication. So it's certainly something that's prominent in asthma, but clearly not something that's exclusive to asthma management. So in terms of assessing adherence, we have a couple of different options that are available that have been more historic, if you will. So one is doing something as simple as having the patient bring in their medications. And a lot of these medications have a counter on the back of them where you can check to see how many doses they have used. The disadvantage to this is that it can lead to dose dumping where a patient could potentially just rattle off a few puffs in a row that they may not necessarily be taking to make the number look lower for this idea of social acceptability. You don't want to disappoint your doctor by making it look like you're not taking your medications. And then it also leads to that same idea of, are you actually getting the medication into your body? So not only is it taking it, but it's also taking it correctly and using a spacer when indicated with certain devices and understanding the technique that's used for these different inhaled medications. I would say one other historical way you can check this is with pharmacy refill data. But once again, just because a patient picked up their medication doesn't necessarily mean that they are necessarily using it. So we can use all sorts of ways to identify non-adherence, but to be quite honest with you, we're pretty confident that the majority of our patients have some sort of level of non-adherence. I think we all recognize it's very difficult to take a medication every day. So Wanda, when you're having the conversation of the patient who maybe is not taking medication as prescribed, what would be your approach to that family to address some of those barriers to adherence? Yeah, that's a great clinical challenge that we see so often. And I totally agree with Bill. Like if using the medication properly, just making sure that they're using it, uh, using the space appropriately and adhering to the medications are some of the biggest challenges we have in asthma care. We have all these therapies available, but the families won't take them. So I think that involves a really heart-to-heart discussion on potentially why. This is assuming that they are honest with you and tell you that they aren't taking it like they should be. Or like you said, we can mention and look at dose counters and medication refills and things like that. But trying to get to the heart of why a patient might be fearful or the parent might be concerned of having their child really take the medications as prescribed. There's a lot of fear with inhaled corticosteroids. The word steroids is worrisome to families. And there are even cultural barriers and perceptions when it comes to some of these therapies and trust. We've done some studies looking at the differences in perception of side effects and long-term outcomes from certain therapies. The other challenge, of course, is uh, education and understanding. The the inhalers can be very complicated. You need to use a spacer for some of them, some of them don't, some of them are dry powder inhalers, and some of them are pills and all these different things. It can be very daunting to families to kind of be able to get a clear understanding of why they are taking what they are taking. And then also just really having kind of a shared decision-making on what would be a regimen that's simple that can really get to the goals of what the patient and family want for control for the child's asthma. That's also very important as well. And when they're really having difficulty, and I know that they're taking their medications as prescribed, then we start thinking about accelerating or increased therapy, including some of the biologics and the immune-based therapies, uh, according to the guidelines. I do think 
as we learn more about asthma, that there will in the future be a role for immune-based therapies even earlier on in therapy, given that there are so many challenges with taking complicated inhaler regimens. Bill, I'd love your thoughts on the best way to address non-adherence. I'm always learning for new tips. Yeah. So I would be remiss not to mention an area that I've been doing some research in is this area of electronic medication monitoring. This is a technology now that is coming out that allows us to better understand when a patient is taking their medication in real time with a date and time stamp to their actuations of their medication. Um, and then some of them even have additional features such as understanding the peak inspiratory flow, understanding the geolocation of where you're taking these medications. So I think that this is something that we're going to start seeing more and more incorporated into standard practice. But what I think has been the best part about this technology is not, oh yeah, it has a little buzzer on it that reminds you to take your medication, but rather it leads to some really frank and open conversations with families about why they do or do not take their medication and how best to simplify regimens for them. So if I find out that a patient for example, a teenager is always able to take their medication in the morning or the night, but not both. We've had conversations about, can we simplify this regimen? Can we work better for you? We also have conversations where you be honest and you say, I see you're not taking your medicines. I'm not upset with you that you're not taking your medicines, but I just really want to understand why and how can we make life easier for you? So this technology really provides some objective data and really opens the door to have these frank conversations that Wanda was talking about and having a shared decision-making conversation with families on how best to approach their care regimen. Oh, that's really great. I think it's just wonderful to have patients to get feedback because people are just living their lives and just having that data in front of them allows them to really think critically about it. So that sounds like a wonderful resource. Well, let's assume that we have addressed everything earlier. We have the right diagnosis. We've addressed exposures. We have, again, addressed comorbidities. And we've actually confirmed that the patient is taking the medication to prescribe. And I guess they do have severe asthma. So one, when we see that patient that we know they are not doing well despite standard inhaled corticosteroid, long-acting beta agonists, what would you think would be your sort of next step in that patient? And unfortunately, we do see these patients. They're adherent. They're using their medications properly. I agree with Bill with the new technologies now and some of these digihalers and smartphone applications that can really help guide the patient and educate them that we can get a sense of where the patient is, is going with these. But then you still have those difficult patients that we just, just can't uh, control. And uh, once we've evaluated all the more easily fixable kind of strategies, such as adherence and using the medications properly, then we do start thinking about accelerating therapy. And I do have frank discussions about many of the biologics and the immune-based therapies. And now there are so many that are available now. For the last 20 years, we had one, which was omalizumab, the first biologic, which targets IgE. And now we have six, not all of them are approved down to the young age. Really the lowest age is about six years of age for uh, dupilumab and omalizumab and mepolizumab, which uh, I think is a whole other discussion, which might be the focus of another podcast where we talk about all the biologics. And then there is some that are approved down to age 12 
which always these therapies seem to get approved for 12 and above first uh, for many of them, and then they get approved to the younger ages. But I do start having discussions about the different available immune-based therapies that do come in an injection form, how they can be given, whether they're given at home, whether I feel like the patient is better to come in and really start talking a little bit about those strategies as well. If still having difficulty, despite a lot of the other interventions that we have already addressed in these patients. I do agree with you. I think a lot of us are having those conversations about what would be the next step since standard inhalers are not helpful. But I think the other thing was brought up the last podcast is just the burden of disease and complications. So Bill, I'd love you to talk a little bit about that. I think we had some discussions about some of the complications of severe asthma. Is there things we should be monitoring for, things that we should anticipate and maybe head off at the past, knowing that we have a severe asthma patient on our hands here? For me, a really eye-opening study was from the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016 by Magici, where they looked at patients in the CAMP cohort. So these are patients with mild to moderate persistent asthma and followed them from childhood into young adulthood. And they found that in this population, you were having patients in their 20s and early 30s who are meeting stage one and two gold criteria for COPD. And so as someone who thinks about asthma and health over the course of the lifespan, I want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to optimize our patients' lung functions for lifelong success now in the pediatric time frame. So by thinking about how we can help reduce exacerbations with the idea that each exacerbation chips away a little bit at lung function is something certainly that I want to monitor over time. Hopefully, we're seeing this less frequently now that we have biologics and we don't need to have pediatric patients on routine oral steroids are the side effects of systemic steroids. You still can see some of these side effects, especially with the high dose inhaled steroids in a younger population. So we want to make sure that we're monitoring a patient's growth and also if there's any signs of adrenal insufficiency. And finally, Wanda mentioned this in the last episode, but certainly a consequence or a complication of this asthma that's not just physiologic, but it's their education. And we want to make sure that pediatric patients are able to go to school, they're able to learn, they're able to participate in all the sports and activities that they want to, like other kids are doing. Yeah, I hear that all a lot. Like, I'm controlling my child's asthma by isolating them in their house through virtual school or lack of participation in physical activity. And you just bring up something that I think, again, these are sort of like life-changing decisions when you're set on a certain path. So again, I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think we talked about a lot on the evaluation of the severe asthma patient. Do you think there's anything else we haven't discussed that is really important for us to consider when we make sure we're doing a broad evaluation for this population? I think that it's an exciting time. We've really added a lot to our armamentarium, but there's still work to be done as far as therapies for patients with severe asthma. And I also think we are, we're making some great strides or attempts to really think about prevention and disease modification because children, their fate is not totally decided when they're a child. Their asthma can remit and they can have very healthy adult lives without any asthma, or they can go on to develop really debilitating disease. And some of the immune-based therapies, we are really excited to kind of test and see if early intervention 
in these processes of exacerbations and allergic or IgE-mediated types of processes, if we could block those with some of these immune-based therapies, maybe we could make a difference in long-term outcomes. And so I would say that is an exciting area of investigation and I'm leading the PARC study, which is a study that's looking at omelizumab in two and three-year-olds and following them out, we treat them for two years and then see what their outcomes are at age six to seven. So kind of seeing how that affects the allergic atopic march. And I hope that makes an impact maybe even on the progression of severity of disease, even if it doesn't, I hope it prevents it from happening, but even those who develop asthma, another key outcome is to see if we can modify the progression of the disease. So it's very exciting in kids to be able to consider intervening in this age range to, for lasting outcomes. Bill, anything else we should do to make sure we're not missing anything when we're evaluating the severe asthma patient? I know whenever I was going through it, it sounded like a lot of steps. But at the same time, I think it's important to be diligent and systematic when you're approaching these severe pediatric patients. Because as we've alluded to, if they continue to be symptomatic, despite all these interventions, these are the patients that are going to end up needing a biologic therapy. And you want to be maximizing the likelihood that they're going to be responding. So for example, if it's not asthma or it's a comorbidity, by using a medication like a biologic, you're not necessarily being cost-effective, nor are you addressing the correct therapeutic. So I think it's important to approach it in this way. And I'm sure we're going to discuss this more in the next episode, but I think it's also the role of shared decision-making with families is critical as we approach the workup and the solutions to difficult to treat and severe asthma. Okay. So please join us for the next episode. I think we're going to take a deep dive into some of the therapeutics beyond standard therapy when we treat our severe asthma patients. Also talk about the future. So thank you for joining us. This is the end of part two of our three-part series on severe pediatric asthma by the ACAAI. For more resources, we're going to share a website, education.acaai.org slash asthma, where a lot of the resources we're talking about will be shared and available for your review. And if you have any feedback about this episode, please email us. That's one word allergy talk at acaai.org if you have any corrections or suggestions. And of course, if you did like what you're hearing, please rate our podcast on iTunes and listen to other Allergy Talk episodes on our channel. You can reach that at college.acaai.org slash Allergy Talk. My name is Jerry Lee for the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Thank you for your time. Enjoy your day.